0: days. Um, um, I'm going to go ahead and kick us off, and we'll just get running then. Um, hello, thank you, and welcome to the Deleuze and Watery Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus, take two. We're nearing the end of take two, and then we'll be starting take three, or I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I'm just going to like sit there and, like I don't know, host a Q&A every week and just leave it open. I may do that. It may uh, be smart, I think, for a little bit, take a break from like a hard reading, wait till another group sort of forms. But we're nearing the end of all of this as we're sort of finishing the introduction to schizoanalysis as we move forward through the final chapters of the book. And we are spending an hour on a single paragraph at a time. Uh, The same thing is actually happening in our Logic of Sense sessions. Uh, I think we got two paragraphs, maybe three done uh, yesterday in two hours. And we're going to have the same setup happening here. Uh, for sure so um, with that I'm going to go ahead and actually kick off with the beginning of our reading which is at the bottom of 315 allow me to share my screen right here and that uh, is the paragraph titled Previously We Distinguished and we're discussing some lovely, lovely, lovely deliriums Previously We Distinguished Two poles of delirium, one as the molecular schizophrenic line of escape, and the other as the paranoiac molar investment. But the perverted pole is equally opposed to the schizophrenic pole, just as the reconstitution of territorialities is opposed to the movement of deterritorialization. And if perversion in the narrowest sense of the word performs a certain very specific type of re-territorialization within the artifice, Perversion in the broad sense compromises all the types of reterritorializations, not merely artificial, but also exotic, archaic, residual, private, etc., thus Oedipus and psychoanalysis as perversion. Even Raymond Russell's schizophrenic machines turn into perverse machines in a theater representing Africa. In short, there is no deterritorialization of the flows of schizophrenic desire. That is not accompanied by global or local re-territorializations, re-territorializations that always reconstitute shores of representation. What is more, the force and the obstinacy of a deterritorialization can only be evaluated through the types of re-territorialization that represent it. The one is the reverse side of the other. Our loves are complexes of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. What we love is always a certain mulatto, male or female. The movement of deterritorialization can never be grasped in itself, one can only grasp its indices in relation to the territorial representations. Take the example of dreams. Yes, dreams are Oedipal, and this comes as no surprise, since dreams are a perverse re-territorialization in relation to the deterritorialization of sleep and nightmares. But, Why return to dreams? Why turn them into royal road of desire in the unconscious, when they are, in fact, the manifestation of a superego, a super-powerful and super-archaized ego, the urzine of the urstat? Yet, at the heart of dreams themselves, as with fantasy and delirium, machines function as indices of deterritorialization. In dreams... There are always machines endowed with the strange property of passing from hand to hand, of escaping and causing circulations, of carrying and being carried away. The airplane of parental coitus, the father's car, the grandmother's sewing machine, the little brother's bicycle, all objects of flight and theft, stealing and stealing away. The machine is always infernal in the family dream. The machine introduces breaks and flows that prevent the dream from being reconfined in its scene and systematized within its representation. It makes the most of an irreducible factor of nonsense, which will develop elsewhere and from without in the conjunctions of the real as such. Psychoanalysis, with its oedipal stubbornness, has only a dim understanding of this, for one re-territorializes on persons and surroundings, but one deterritorializes on machines. It is Schreber's father who acts through machines, or on the contrary, is it the machines themselves that function through the father. Psychoanalysis settles on the imaginary and structural representatives of re-territorialization, while schizoanalysis follows the machinic indices of deterritorialization. The opposition still holds between the erotic on the couch as an ultimate and sterile land, the last exhausted colony, and the schizo, out for a walk in a deterritorialized circuit. This is why we don't do like 10 paragraphs a day. Like this, this paragraph is why we don't do that. Um, I don't think we can do this without going literally sentence by sentence. Feel free to disagree with me, anybody.
1: I think you're right. We got to go piece by piece just to preface that, right? So last week we talked about this was an important part of like the the the, the role of representation and the affirmative need as much as um, schizoanalysis task of destruction uh, with that need, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, if we want to go back just a little bit, they're talking at this point about the Territorialities of kind of everything. The the line from the previous, I think, that affects the last line of this sentence. Even the schizo stroll or voyage does not affect great ter- deterritorializations without borrowing from territorial circuits. The tottering walk of Malloy in his bicycle preserves the mother's room as a vestige of a goal. The vasting spirals of the unnamable keep the familial tower as an uncertain center where it continues to turn while treading its own underfoot. The infinite series of juxtaposed and unlocalized parks in Watt still contains a reference to Mr. Knott's house, the only one, capable of pushing the soul out of doors, but also summoning it back into place. We are all little dogs, we need circuits, and we need to be taken for walks. This seems to be an explanation of kind of what they mean by that grouping of of a sentence, if that makes sense. It feels like that's kind of the thing that they're starting to uh, answer here.
1: Yeah, I think you're spot on, right? They're trying to get into how, how change, basically how change works in terms of um, the conditions of, of capital, right? And like you said, right, there's a circuitry that's not exactly consistent, but continues to um, change with changes in the territoriality go ahead Doug I
2: was just going to say I think it's desiring production in general at this point at least not just capitalism because the way that I'm seeing this is that um, it's kind of all going back to beginning and um, the uh I forget exactly how they phrase it but the sort of unification of the perspectives of man and nature and industry and uh Playing with the distinction between inside and out, and so um, the kind of classical conception of movement doesn't work anymore because that idea of uh, like a body moving through an outside, you know, presupposes a clean separation between uh, you know the body and its inside and the outside, and that doesn't work anymore. So yeah, it's the fact that everything is still sort of tied down to a territory. Uh, you know, at the beginning of end, end of the movement that they're really, uh, trying to, um, emphasize, I think that, that there is no clean separation between the inside and the outside. There's always a bit of territoriality in the thing.
0: To say another way, Doug, cause I, I think I agree. Um, the push here, I, what you're saying is, um, we're not able to escape some level of what it means to be a social human creature. That there is, by nature, through the production of how we have meaning, there is a territoriality. There is deterritorialization. There is reterritorialization. We're not. These are the processes that produce things and meaning. And it's not necessarily that we need to escape them and disappear. Uh, it's these. We need to understand them and understand how they work together and utilize them. No.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it ties into the emphasis on groups and collectivity and not, uh, individuals, alienated subjects, um, that you have to see how you are connected to these other things, uh, in order to understand how you can actually affect
0: change. But let's, let's take it sentence by sentence and go through, because I think it's worthwhile. Um, Previously, we distinguished two poles of delirium. One is molecular schizophrenic line of escape. The other is paranoiac molar investment. Uh, the the paranoiac molar investment would be the uh, belief that you found a certain representation that is a thing, that I am invested in that larger story or thing. I am white. I am a Christian. I am a good man. I'm, a, I'm an American, that molar investment in that story. The molecular schizophrenic line of escape would be, I mean kind of almost anything else. I don't know how else to put it, um, but it's uh, um, not utilizing those and simply disappearing through the random connective nature of the schizophrenic. Is that an easy way to put it? How else would someone describe that, the two poles of delirium? You
3: can think of the um, molecular schizophrenic line as the, as the unconscious or subconscious, and the, uh, the paranoic molar vestment would be the, the conscious maybe two uh, two aspects of the symbolic
0: order? Not, I'm hesitant to the, assign a conscious the, or unconscious. Not the,
1: mm-hmm. not the symbolic order, but otherwise I think I I, I think you can make that argument because so you've got to be careful because you're playing with the molecular and the molar and that relates to the unconscious and the preconscious but the reason I think you can get away with that right here is the Part of the paranoiac investment is gonna be the mass phenomena. And when we're talking about phenomena, we're moving to the preconscious. So I I think for this sentence you can get away with that. But definitely not that moves toward the symbolic, right, in representation,
4: not the not the molecular unconscious, right?
0: It's it's um to read to read another a bit. The real problem of delirium is the extraordinary transitions between poles. The one is a reactionary pole, so to speak, a fascist pole of the type, I am a superior race which shows up in every paranoid delirium. The other is a revolutionary pole, like Rimbaud, when he says, I am an inferior race, always and forever. Every delirium invests history before investing some ridiculous mommy-daddy. And so, where, even where therapy or a cure is concerned, provided this is mental illness, if the historical references of the delirium are ignored, if you just go round and round between a symbolic father and an imaginary father, you never escape familialism. You remain locked within the framework of the most traditional types of psychiatry. Um, and the, the line from Rimbaud is... Uh, from Bad Blood, uh, priests, professors, and doctors, you are mistaken for delivering me into the hands of the law. I have never been one of you. I have never been a Christian. I belong to the race that's saying on the scaffold. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, use of Rimbaud for this. But again, I think that's the push he's making. He even himself calls it sort of reactionary versus revolutionary polls. The, the one that is uh, playing to uh, the hypernormative. You might say, or the revolutionary pole, that isn't playing necessarily counter to that, even though it may appear as such. But instead, it's breaking out of the structure. How it—that's how it produces its meaning and how it plays.
1: Well, I think this does get at like what
0: you and, Brits, or you and Doug were talking about
1: earlier too. This is that point about, you know, the, there's not a hard divided line between the molar and the molecular. Because they have a reciprocal relationship, the kind of, um, you know, the kind of antipodal nature they're to, to losing water talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the point with delirium to that is like, as things are happening during a schizophrenic process of production, right? Miraculation, so too can they be happening at a molecular, um, or excuse me, a molar paranoiac way, right? Get moving toward, like, social production. So this is, like, the stuff they highlighted with Lacan, where you can find all these different um, aspects of social production happening with things like uh, mass phenomena and that. Um, Or, like, with Schaber's father, right? There's a way in which the father is spoken through by way of the machines at a desiring machine level, right? Or at at the same token at a social production level.
2: yeah and i just think another helpful way to look at that is like in um uh, the end of chapter one the whole and its parts when they talk about the holes always being you know the totality is always being produced as another thing alongside the parts that way you can like have you know uh production on the holes just right alongside production on the parts the molecular right next to the uh, molar
1: Right, because any totality is a perspective alongside the other perspectives, right? And so the the way of relationships, the first synthesis is the one of the critical things you I think you're really underscoring there. I
2: Like that way of looking at it in terms of yeah perspectives, that's probably helpful.
0: Curtis, kind of it looks like the last part is based on the fact that schizophrenic has difficulty coping with the real. I'm hesitant to use the real in this um, in this context or with Deleuze. Um, there is there is no definite meaning. I think uh, would be what Deleuze would say when we start talking about representations. Uh, a, a paranoiac investment would be saying this is what a thing means, even though it's absolutely not because of the nature of again to go to his other books or just deconstructionism. Like we can't actually ever really have that um, thing. There's a appeal always to a sort of platonic ideal behind everything that, Oh, this is that thing. We've got a definite meaning. doesn't really work that way. Everything requires a level of uh, interpretation. You always have to interpret and place it within your own context, which breaks things apart. A schizophrenic doesn't do the interpretation. Uh, A schizophrenic is basically dealing almost purely with machines. Uh, With machines, the parts of it, you don't uh, analyze what a machine means because that is nonsense, you you look at the parts of a machine, you decide if it's functioning or not, what it's meant to do, and like how it's, what it outputs, and you're done. There's no larger sort of story there. And so that's kind of the two sides we're talking about. is one is uh, the schizophrenic is purely dealing only with the pieces of machine without context. The other side is essentially only context, this demand of knowledge, uh, which is the paranoiac uh, you know par excellence. Uh, that is only living in that and not caring at all about the machines and how they're built or what they're set up as, uh, who are prone to interpretive issues, we'll say as a thing. Um, so it's not so much that the schizophrenic doesn't deal with reality. The schizophrenic is broken because they are almost pure escape and they don't piece things together in sort of large scale, larger narratives because that's the, sort of essence. And again, I'm not talking about like actual schizophrenia as it exists today. I'm using it in wholly in the context of this um uh like ev- in every way. I'm totally using it in the context of this. Um but I think that's kind of the way I would I would sort of talk about it because it's the the next line. But the perverted pole is equally opposed to the schizophrenic just as reconstitution of territorialities is opposed to the movement of deterritorialization. Perverted, in this case, means uh, turning sort of ideas on their head, playing with that. The perversion, in the narrowest sense of the word, performs a specific type of re-territorialization within the artifice. Perversion, in the broad sense, comprises all the re-territorializations. Not merely, like, we're, fuck, the sentence is so fucking long. Um, the perverse pole is also opposed to the schizophrenic. The schizophrenic doesn't do ter- re kind of, at all there is really no territory within that setup it is reterritorial like deterritorialization effectively um so the the setup as we go and we reconstitute or we rebuild or the pervert builds a territory as they're doing that they're also opposed to this hyper you know deterritorialization where nothing matters at all perversion still plays with some level of interpreting that larger scale representation playing with you know, reconstituting these elements as a specific territory. That's how I read the second sentence. This is going to take goddamn forever. That's how I read the second sentence. I'll I'll give you guys a second to respond. Sorry. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think the big thing is the way it goes with the socii, right? So if perversion is antipodal to schizophrenia, the same way that the paranoiac would be, right? So then there's something happening during this process where, um, right, there's the, the territory is changing, right? The socius has affected a deterritorialization, but the perversion is the, in a sense, kind of the reconstitution of that territoriality by way of, um, uh, well, particularly the Earth, right? But so coding or rather recoding and um, the way that re territorialization is going to rely on basically the socius, right? So you you are getting a change and some some deviation, right? But the paranoiac is keeping it within a certain grouping, a certain configuration. That, albeit, is changing, but nevertheless, it's changing with a certain reference to codes and a certain, um, you know, a certain interest in a, pre- a kind of preservation during change, which is where it is kind of platonic, right? There's kind there's a cons- conservation happening
3: you took with the uh, the perversion as a kind of um, of the uh, the uh, the uh, the machines the actual uh, in relation to the virtual and the schizophrenic is you know um, <clears throat> opposed to the um, opposed to these uh, actual machine machinic um, perversions Let's To, to kind of that.
0: To kind of to kind of steal from another book, and I know you're in the reading, so (laughs) it'll be shorthand, and I hope not terribly confusing for everyone else. Um, The way he describes and talks about these in *Logic of Sense*, I do think there is some level that carries through. I think he's made some adjustments in how he talks about it or thinks about it. But when we're talking about the schizophrenic, we're talking about pure bodies. We're talking about. There is no larger meaning. Everything's partial objects. Things connect as they do. I connect them. I put pieces together and pieces kind of get moving as they do. The hyper idealized, the paranoiac, who absolutely is certain that words are, and representations are truth and they're able to interpret them perfectly, live in a different place. The, the perverted, the perverse is able to sit not between them, I may say in this case, but instead the perverse is... a perversion of the heights of the idealized of the representation of the certainty, but it's also equally opposed to the hyper broken apart schizophrenic. It's not like it wants everyone to be broken apart. We need to have to communicate, to know what to eat, to have social situations. We have to have some level of social investment. We're not like this weird. I mean, some people might interpret it as being weird, hyper libertarian, hyper individualists, but it's a little bit different than that it's it's a different tactic where it's like look it's the perverse twist things now oedipus is the example they use that he uses they use in this paragraph and i think it's a very good example because it is something that does a reterritorialization uh it does and it it plays with things and it twists them in a different way now it's still opposed overall to the schizo you know hyper deterritorialization because it is still working against that It said line Uh, Perversion in the broad sense comprises all the types of re-territorializations, not merely artificial, but also exotic, archaic, residual, private. That Oedipus and psychoanalysis are perversion. This is not saying perversion's bad. This is not ascribing sort of an ethical onus on any of that. It's just saying that the nature of these things that try to reinterpret or reinvest or replay these or re-territorialize by nature are perverse. Uh, because they're not a demanding territory, they are taking things that are deterritorialized through the process of uh, say schizoanalysis or being schizo in the slight way or the 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 nature of that, and allowing themselves to sort of re-territorialize in a different direction. That's how I kind of see this and play with perversion in that in that sense. But right.
3: well, these perversions are forms of actualization, and schizophrenia uh, is a form of counteractualization in.
0: Say that one more time. Sorry, someone jumped in uh, while you were talking.
3: Schizophrenia is a is a form of counteractualization, of the you know, uh, speaking lines of flight.
0: I don't know if I'd say schizo is counteractualization as much as just, uh, in the in the form of logic, a sense it would just be living in the bodies. It's the, it is the complete breakdown of all meaning and sense, um, sort of by nature because you're not connecting. Random connections are not necessarily good or useful. This would be playing with instead, uh, as he would say, dancing on the surface inside of Logic of Sense, but taking the ideas as, you know, returning them, being able to sort bodies, being able to see the pieces of the machines as they are. If there is a thrust that is absolutely between this, it's the line he says about Zarathustra, who was able at 6,000 feet to, to sort bodies. Um, that mentality, I think, is very much what he's trying to push through here, this idea of... Um, understanding things are machinic, that it's not determinate by the representations, that it's not about interpreting any of that. It's about seeing the pieces as they're laid out, how they work, how they're supposed to work, where the pieces are connected, where they're broken, what's in their way, as if it was just machinic and treating it like that. Uh,
4: I mean, I think the... To that point, I think the
1: perversions is getting at the functionalities and capacities, right? So a deterritorialization opens up a new new possible functions, new possible distributions for um, what's in the assemblage, right? But the perversion affects what they're going to do um, altogether, right? Because you've got the tension between the BWO and its distribution at the molecular level, and the relation with the the associates at the molar level. And particularly, right, by way of, of recoding and that the earth stack comes into play. So, what things can do is affected on one hand by this, this deterritorialization, right, by the breakdown of, of codes and by the breakdown of the territory. A new consummation of the real is opened up. At the same time, you've got those, those capacities and functions still having to deal with the molar and the way that they'll, uh, and this is where I think the perversion is, that they will still be, um, in a certain sense, subject to uh, not just the molar representation, but however the recoding happens, however the re-territorialization happens, it, thus it, affecting it, the yeah, consummation.
0: That's a great way to put it. It's a, the, the the perverts are the people who basically specialize in coding. That's the, that's the thing a pervert does. That's what perversion is. It's coding, it's re-territorialization, recoding whatever but it's that's the thing is laying that out in order sort of what is the what is necessarily the social investment the desiring machines are going to have the pervert is kind of the one who's able to do that
1: right because this
0: is where psychoanalysis comes into view is that it has a
1: play in that molar um, process right it has a place with recoding and re-territorialization that Deleuze and Guattari are pointing out they don't they don't even fully understand.
0: So uh, real quick, Kedis is asking why the fuck is he saying pervert, which is a very fair uh, comment. It's an old schizo, it's, a, it's an old psychoanalytic and sort of psychological term that is literally about someone who sort of alters the original course of meaning, plays with it, perverts the thing. Uh, we have a sort of sexual side to it now um, but pervert is literally about corrupting, distorting, and 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 sort of putting a twist on things. The neurotic, the psychotic, these other things play in a different space. Uh, they're more about more really the paranoiac um, and the certainty of things than necessarily uh, the pervert. If that makes if that helps, that's why like uh, Zizek has his films, the pervert's guide to cinema and the pervert's guide to ideology. It's not. I mean, granted, he would also say that it's necessarily all sexual, and so would Deleuze and watery. But I think in um, English, we have a um, we have a different sort of use in English parlance. So yeah, yeah. A neurotic Seraph nails it. The neurotic would overly concerned with the codes that they are given. They would probably uh, fastidiously stick to them, and it's about the codes. It's not about creating them or forming them. Uh, the psychotic would probably actually just be someone who maybe well, I don't want to get into all of it, but they all have different ways of reacting to coding. But Jack's comment about the pervert being basically this master of code or recodification is a great way to put it. Thanks, Jack.
1: Yeah, no problem. Because that's that's one of the concerns in psychoanalysis is perversion, and you get this in lots of sense. Perversion there is. It's basically a a whole new process of change. Um, And that's certainly, like early Freud, that's kind of the idea. There's a like the mouth, right? The mouth has all sorts of capacities. And so you can't really relegate the mouth to a normalized uh, model to understand its functions because the mouth has capacities. Eating shit for sexual pleasure um, isn't necessarily... A, a, a true deviation because of the way normality works, but this is the tension here. Deleuze and Guattari are saying there's another way of understanding perversion, which is appeal to a changing representation, right? A changing um, sense of the functionalities uh, versus the schizophrenic thing that I was kind of talking about earlier.
0: Mm-hmm. The the example. Um, the, and the, that's the line it's, um, just to say again, perversion in the broad sense comprises all types of re-territorializations, not merely artificial. Um, specifically here, he's calling out the rest of it. It's not just artificial as if, uh, oh, you're perverting a thing. It's a, it's a facade. It's fake. It's like, no, it's also exotic re-territorializations, archaic, residual, private, whatever the re-territorialization is that's necessary in it. The example that they give um, for uh, Raymond Russell, his uh, Impressions of Africa, is the book um, they're talking about here. I'm going to pop a PDF in the uh, – it's totally worth checking out. It's, uh, it's insane. Um, and at first, I was kind of taken aback by it, to say the least. I've got it streaming if you want to take a look. Uh, it is, we will say, lightly – uh, on its face, just one of the weirdest racist things. But it's not. It's literally a book he had with like, without ever actually visiting Africa, what he kind of thought Africa might be like and his impressions of it. It's like a paper orientalism. I don't know how else to explain it. like it's it's actually really worth looking through. But the line that they have here that I love, even Raymond Russell's schizophrenic machines, which, As you read, you will understand he's got just a billion little things that are in this book that are on their own, wholly nonsensical, absolutely not relegated to Africa or even related to it, but they turn into a perverse machine in a theater representing Africa by just creating that territory, by re-territorializing them, by, by doing that, it has created this perverse Essence that he's turned things back on themselves. The book's really worth reading, and it's uh, it's odd as shit, totally weird. Just mentioning, super weird, but worth it.
3: I found uh, I found a quote in um, in Logic of Sense um, because there he talks about perversion a number of times and defines it. But this quote here talks about perversion as a kind of a desire. Uh, it's not someone who who desires, but someone who introduces desire into an entirely different system. And makes it play within the system. Interesting. Yeah, the role of an internal limit, a virtual center or zero point, just kind of interesting. Yeah, so it's a um, desire that's transferred into a, a different system. Maybe that's the uh, you know, yeah. So by desire that by itself it uh, is not perversion, but when it's um, maybe. Um, uh, you know, introduced into a different system of um, thought or, um, you know, they like, like a fetish, you know.
1: That's kind of why I'm suggesting there might be a little bit of a, a difference in usage though, right? Because they are pointing out that um, the perverted pole is equally opposed to the uh, schizophrenic pole in reference to the paranoiac pole being opposed just as the reconstitution of territorialities, is opposed to the movement of deterritorialization.
0: So can I think like, your,
1: your point's right. It can be, I, I think you're right. It is the way desires changing the re-territorialization, you're, you're, but there's a paranoiac sense to what's happening in terms of perversion that I, you get. I, I don't agree in with I, I
0: don't, I don't, I, don't I, 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 I I don't think there's necessarily a required paranoiac dimension in the same way. Like otherwise the wording here is, um, and I'm not saying that there's like a Euclidean geometry reality to what I'm about to say, but he's not saying that there's two poles and Oh look, this is also a post-schizophrenic pole. Therefore it's in the same space or that it's along the line or whatever it may be. It's not that it's by nature, paranoiac in the sense that like one step above schizophrenic is more paranoiac. It's much more, I think, of a, a flowing sort of reality because the to go to the next line, um, after the scene about Africa, it kind of talks about what I mean. In short, there is no deterritorialization of the flows of schizophrenic desire that is not accompanied by a global or local re-territorializations, re-territorializations that always reconstitute shores of representation. It's a Again, if we go to the nature of how they've talked here, how we generate meaning or how we play, or even through logic of sense, there's a, there's a necessary bounce back. And that bouncing on their terrible, terrible diagrams even is one of the things they're constantly saying. It's like this, this us or the meaning or whatever it is bounces back and forth or, or flies between them. The play here they're saying is that there is no way to just sit inside of that we necessarily have to bounce. We necessarily have to make our way back. And there's another pole. There's another pole. It is not a bipolar thing, perhaps more tripolar or another setup that may make less sense than the words I'm using. But I don't necessarily think that they're in line with each other, saying that the perverse is the same is on the line with paranoiac or even a paranoiac investment.
1: I think I agree with you that they. it would be wrong to say the paranoiac and the perverse are the same. Um, I I think what they're highlighting, though, is that perversion here, right? I mean, they point to the socius and the despotic and its perverts. Um, the primitive socius, the earth, and its village perverts. There's a sense in which um, what's happening at the molar level does seem to be more toward, I think, the paranoiac under these configurations. I do think I would agree with you, though. I I think it's possible that the perverse doesn't have to function that way. But to that point, it can't be understood as schizophrenic either, right? Because it's on the other side of the pole. So it, it is an interesting dilemma they're setting up here. But I think you're right. I don't think the perverse is necessarily paranoiac. even just like it's not necessarily schizophrenic.
0: Well, and the next line to just just go through it. What is more? The force and the obstinacy of a deterritorialization can only be evaluated through the types of re-territorialization that represent it. The one is the reverse side of the other. That that is a very powerful statement towards this, that we are always talking about kind of one than the other, one than the other. Again, if we're talking about the machinic nature of this, the procedural nature of how these things happen and and the sort of imminent experience of it, as we bounce around, he says cleanly, our loves are complexes of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. What we love is always a certain mulatto, male or female, this this complexity of the other person. It is not that we love specifically just this one complete whole person that is all the parts that I'm thinking of in the moment. We're never that. Our love is a complex of deterritorialization, the movement away from the paranoiac investment, but also reterritorialization as a new form is found and, and new sort of setup is placed around that. What we love is always a certain mulatto, male or female, that is a really weird language, but I think he's making more the point that it's we are all we love all of those in one person that it's not specifically any singular element because we can't uh, as he says we can't uh, the next line the movement of deterritorialization can never be grasped in itself we can't necessarily feel or talk about deterritorialization we can only grasp that it happened, its indices in relation to the territorial representations. The need for us to deal with the representations in order to see the deterritorialization that took place is always necessary. Right. And so like with the mulatto thing in that.
1: When they're talking about love and as a complex here in an index, I think they're getting at a matter of talking about basically where you get an inclusive disjunction, you get an exclusive, right? So you get the inclusive disjunction of the raciality that um, produces a mulatto person. Exactly. At the same time, you get the you do get the racist side of that too, right? The racial and the racist, as they say in chapter two. Um, and part of the, the thing I want to highlight with that is uh, at the top of the page, they do point out that's a and if perversion in the narrowest sense of the word performs a certain very specific type of re-territorialization within the artifice, perversion in the broad sense comprises all the, all the types of re not merely artificial, but also exotic, archaic, residual, private, etc. Thus, Oedipus and psychoanalysis as perversion. Now, to your point, I could see someone writing um, perhaps even a kick-ass essay on applying logic of sense to this and the way that perversion could function in a, uh, with revolutionary investment, or maybe even using anti-Oedipus to that. Because that is one of the problems, right, is that perversions, the way they're talking about right now, is tied to uh, Oedipal and psychoanalytic re territorializations But equally, I think you're right, Roots. it doesn't have to be.
0: Let's, it's And it's playing within that. I'm going to... Um... The the lines here, a lot of this is also in one of his lectures from Anti-Oedipus. Um, I, I wanna read a little bit of a, a an excerpt from that, which I think will help with the rest of uh, this as we talk, because he starts talking about the familial. He's talking about uh, basically looking at the re-territorialization as how we're able to tell where the deterritorialization happened. happened. Um, uh, quote, see Jackson's letter, the classic black mother who says to her son, don't fool around and marry well, make money. The classic mother here, is she acting like a mother, like an Oedipal object of desire? Or is she acting in such a way that she transmits a certain type of libidinal investment of the social field, namely the type that marries well, he makes love, and this in the strictest sense of the term with something through his wife unconsciously with a certain number of economic political, social processes, and that love has always been a means through which the libido attains something other than the beloved person, namely a whole cutting up of the historical social field, ultimately we always make love with the names of history. The other mother of Jackson, the one who says, grab your gun, it follows that the two act as agents of transmission in a certain social historical investment. Uh, That from one uh, one to the other, the pole of these investments has changed. That in one case, we can say there are reactionary investments, at the limit, fascist. In the other case, it's a revolutionary libidinal investment. Our loves are like the conduits and the pathways of these investments that are not, once again, of a familial nature, but a historical, political nature. And the final problem of analysis is not only the study of these machines, but the positive study of the manner in which desiring machines carry out these investments. The play here, as he starts going through, and I don't really need to talk through dreams, we can if we want, but the play through the next few bits is, I think, a lot of this. He talks about dreams, he said, but why return to dreams? Why turn them into the royal road of desire and the unconscious when they are, in fact, the manifestation of a superego? Uh, At the heart of dreams themselves, as with fantasy and delirium, as the Jackson's letter, as I was just talking about, machines function as indices of deterritorialization. In dreams, there are always machines endowed with a strange property of passing from hand to hand, escaping circulations of carrying, being carried away, the airplane of parental coitus, a father's car, grandmother's sewing machine, little brother's bicycle, all objects of flight and theft, stealing and stealing away, each of these individual machines. The machine is always infernal in the familial dream. The machine introduces breaks and flows that prevent a dream from being reconfined in its scene, systematized within representation. It makes most. It makes the most of an irreducible factor of nonsense, which we may have run into in logical sense, which will develop elsewhere and from without in the conjunctions of the real as such. To go back to your point, Jack, we're talking about the conjunctive sort of essence of all this um, psychoanalysis with its Oedipal stubbornness has only a dim understanding of this for one re-territorializes on persons and surroundings, but one deterritorializes on machines. This line here, I think is the thrust of the argument that they're bringing to forebear that we sit and we talk about, uh, within psychoanalysis, uh, we re-territorialize on persons, um, Oh, it's this is your father. We break a thing down and rebuild it as the father. We re-territorialize on surroundings. But it's completely missing the point of the deterritorialization. We de de-territor- deterritorialize on machines, on the items itself. Psychoanalysis settles the imaginary and structural representations. It settles on the imaginary and structural representatives of re-territorialization, while schizoanalysis follows the machinic indices of deterritorialization what is breaking, what isn't working, what isn't set up, rather than chasing where the person ended up in the representation as a setup. It's a, sorry for the long explanation, kind of busting through the second half, but I feel like that's, uh, actually, that's not bad. Yeah, that's pretty much how I think that goes.
1: Yeah. Uh, I I don't think so. I mean, I I think you're really getting a a major point here, which is that you're, I mean, the complex has a kind of, uh, in a sense, it's kind of a multiplicity here, right? This index of love and that, like you're saying, and the the point is that I think your your quote of the lecture really highlighted well is that both of those mothers are are conduits of flows, right? More critically, they're innate; they're part of the connective synthesis in terms of uh, the way things are connecting and libidinal flows are moving through it. And at the end of this paragraph, right, like that's. That's really critical because the way in which um, you have this tension between the mole and the molecular, between something like an inclusive and exclusive disjunction, this is all getting, gearing up toward the third synthesis and what will ultimately be the consummation of the real, right? Which will be this, it, you know, they're calling it delirious for a reason, right? It's not going to be um, racial any more than it's racist. You're going to get both. With And you're going to get the mulatto in that sense, right? But that will be the consummation of the real.
0: I do want to read a little bit um, more from, uh, and I, I will post a link in the chat. If you haven't, um, there is an extraordinary bit called the Deleuze seminars, uh, deleuze.cla.purdue.edu. Um, it's a huge collection of, uh, English translations of uh, Deleuze's various semil- seminars—they're great, uh, and they're really, really useful. And I think a pretty amazing, <laughs> amazing setup for us. Um, specifically, the question he's posed in one of them is: Why are there only two poles? He he had just said. Um, If schizoanalysis has a sense, it is at the level of analysis of the unconscious to tip delirium from the pole that is always present, the reactionary fascist pole that implies a certain type of investment, towards the other pole, no matter, if it is hard and slow, the revolutionary pole. Well, why only two poles? We can make many, he responds, but fundamentally, there are clearly two great types of investment. The reference of libidinal investments is Daddy Mommy, these are the territorialities and the deterritorializations. This must be found in the unconscious, especially at the level of its loves. Phantasm of naturality, of a pure race, movement of the pendulum, revolutionary phantasm of deterritorialization. If you're saying that on the analyst's couch, what flows still flows. All right then, but the problem that I would pose here is, there are types of flow that pass beneath the door, what psychoanalysts call the viscosity of the libido, an over-viscous libido that does not let itself be grasped by the codes of psychoanalysis. All right here, yes, there is a deterritorialization, but psychoanalysis says negative reaction. What annoys me in psychoanalysis is the cult of castration. The family is the system of transmission. If you say the madman is someone who remains with his desiring machines, who does not carry out social investments, I do not follow you. In all madness, I see an intense investment of a particular type. This goes for adults as well as children from the earliest childhood to desiring uh, earliest childhood that the desiring machines are plugged into the social field. I think that's really, this whole paragraph, I kind of just want to now read all of these. I could just go on. This whole thing's huge, but wholly worth reading. Um, Sorry, it's just great. Um, uh, Kedis says, why dreams? I think it's mostly because one can interpret dreams. Somehow interpreting is the perfect super ability. I think the reason he's gone back to dreams, uh, myself, is because he's here talking about sort of the nature of how dreams work and they're, how they're filled with machines. When we interpret them, we start placing investment on them. Dreams themselves don't really have a, a significant amount of meaning. We, we ascribe that. Um, and if we say, oh, that's this bigger meaning, it's a superego, it's this, it's that, it's the other, uh, we've done a great deal to push the deterritorialization back towards the one pole. Whereas the reality is, as he says, there are always machines passing hand to hand. We have all of these machines introduce breaks and flows, and these prevent the dream from being reconfined. He's talking about the reason dreams don't make sense, the reason they aren't one large thing, the reason we feel like, uh, suddenly I was naked in a schoolyard and then I was bowling with John Lennon. Like these things are just what's happening. We can assign to them, uh, they don't get to be defined on their own. They have to be interpreted because of the nature of their machinic sort of parts. That's how I took that.
4: To add on to that, um,
1: there's a way in which psychoanalysis uses dreams as a representation of the, uh, the unconscious, right? And this is their point about the theater. There's a way of trying to represent the unconscious in that manner. And this is to move toward the pre-conscious because at that point, you know, you're really getting at the representation of the person, um, not only the unconscious, but you're going to move toward um, certainly the ego, right? The I and the self are going to become your main concern there. In contrast, right, to losing water, you're getting at a point where there's another way to understand dreams, which is that they're deterritorializing, that they're affecting machines as opposed to um, being concerned with the structure and the the ego, the I. Like it's the like classic movie, right? Like, you know, tell me about your dreams, and then like we'll make some sort of representation of desires out of the, out of your your story, right?
0: Any questions or thoughts on the rest of this paragraph? We've now gone through. It. It's a long one. That only took an hour. That's fine. It's a. I want to just go back and actually say a sentence I kind of skipped over. <clears throat> is it Schreber's father who acts through machines or on the contrary, is it the machines themselves that function through the father? Trevor's Schreber, father isn't used here by accident or as, oh, I like Shreber. Shreber's father literally built machines for children, uh, a stick with a headband attached to it that was attached to a chair that wouldn't let a child do anything but stand up straight. Uh, That kind of shit. the Machines that would tie a child down to a chair or a bed if they were overacting. Uh, Very much, Shreber's father built machines. Google it. They're actually really weird. And it helps explain Shreber, honestly, as far as I see. Um, But the the line here is the question they're asking. Is it Shreber's father who functioned through the machine? Was it Shreber's father using the machines to put stories into his son? which would be, I think, a more traditional psychoanalytic view, or is it the machines that actually functioned through Schreber's father? That Schreber's father um, was the conduit, the coding of the flows happened through him, the machines were just the machines doing what they did. And the line there that's in italics, psychoanalysis settles on the imaginary and structural representatives of re-territorialization, analysis follows the machinic indices of deterritorialization. That's the difference. And it's a big, it's a stark difference.
2: I really uh, love that line, uh, Brooks. And I think what's great about it is that uh, like when you first read it, you're like, what are they talking about? Like the machines have a mind of their own. And I think like they do want us to go that far, but like then realize, no, these are like avatars of the
0: socius essentially. That's what the parents are. That's, that's how they work. They're, they're the flows of society that are demanding. And again, if uh, I post a picture of Shrubber's father's machines, um, just one of them, um, the traditional view would be, oh, Schreber's father had issues and he was utilizing these machines to act on the son. Uh, that's how it was going. And it's, that's one way uh, for sure. Another way would be to say, these machines uh, exist within the social sphere for a reason like Schreber didn't Schreber wasn't a freak these aren't like some out of left field crazy machines he's fit what they demanded children to be socially the social coding through the father the machines just kind of were acting through the dad to do this to the kid so that would be an interesting switch for all of it to be I mean that's actually basically schizoanalysis (laughs)
2: Yeah. And to like phrase it in the way from the beginning of the section where it's that uh, Oedipus is first a dream, a dream, the like paranoiac father, like here, uh, maybe um, Schreber's father's machines were, uh, you know, first a dream in the uh, paranoiac despot before the father himself.
0: If we go with, uh, I'm going to tell a dad story because everyone loves my dad stories. Uh, Dexter's four, four and a half. Now it's, uh, and a lot of you have actually gotten to listen to him, grow up and become a talking person, which is crazy. Uh, he's in a high chair. Now, why do we have high chairs? Why do I have him in a high chair? Why is that set up? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but is him being in a high chair? And when he says, I want to sit in that chair and it points to one of the adult ones. And I say reflexively because. Ah. Uh, Because I am who I am. No, no, that's for big kids. What the fuck did I say that for? First off, why did I even say that? But two, why is that the case? Am I now acting through the chair to him? Am I utilizing the chair and he's got issues with me? Or is it, I would probably argue, not to relieve myself of culpability and I'm working on myself, but I would argue that... The way that I also was raised is to talk about things like that, that the society at large trains us to think about these stages of life like that, that these things are for big kids, adults, little kids. Here's this, not a safety thing, really, that the machines of society are acting through me to raise him. I'm properly axiomatizing my child for capital. You're all very welcome. It's difficult by the way. It's not easy to be a dad.
4: I think that's
1: a really important point though, because going back to the, the third synthesis, the consummation of the real and all that jazz, that's really critical because with Schraber and his father, right? The point that they're getting at is that it's simulation, right? The father is a simulation of what capital does during the second and third syntheses, particularly. Right, the way that things are going to function based on the way capital moves between the affiliative and the alliance, right? And the way that that's going to produce the territorialities, intensities, the a-facts that consummate, right? That's going to be simulated with things like the, like the parents. And I, I think your, your story is a nice example of that, especially because you get, right, this is something they talk about early on in 3, but you get a molar memory, right? There is a distribution happening there that, um, That is part of the production of memory, right? It's part of something that happened in a social um, second synthesis, right? Oh, yeah.
3: But is Schreiber and his uh, father represent these polar opposites then?
0: No, no. Schreiber and his father are both produced by society's machines. Right. I, I, I don't necessarily know if they necessarily even represent more than just their part of being in that machine in these examples that... Uh, Shrubber's father, who acts through the machines, or is it the machines that function through him? The machines function through the father. The social functions through the parents. The parents are effectively the perverts who are codifying the desires of the child and placing them in specific places, the political, historical realities that have come before us in order to, we like to say, uh, you know, prepare the child for the world, be a good parent, all of those terms. But the machines that are creating me to say a certain thing, they're acting through me on him sure. and through Shreber's father as well.
3: Right. But Schreiber was uh, treated as a schizophrenic by Freud.
0: right? Yes. Um, and he's, I mean, there's a reason they go through this entire thing because he's a really interesting case in the sense that, uh, I mean, Freud landed straight at uh, daddy issues and, you know, all of these things.
2: Yeah, well, it's just important that Freud didn't treat him himself. Freud read his memoirs of course. and he wrote about them.
0: But as Freud did, Freud assigned a great deal of representationality to, to why Schreiber is how he is across the board. Their reference throughout this to solar anus and the sunbeams bursting out of his asshole are all meant to be little digs at, like, the, the weird symbology and representationality that Freud assigned to a lot of stuff. And I think a lot of what they've done throughout this is starting to deconstruct this and saying, look, all these things that Trevor's got, that he's made of machines too. There's a lot of these machines. Machines, generally speaking, are broken. And instead of screaming about the representation and saying, oh, the mach- the representation built the machines, it's like, no, no, the machines worked to create the representation that are now fucking with these other machines. And sort of having a, a I consider it to be a, a bit of a more holistic view of actually how these things get built at a molecular level. I, I wanted to underline something you,
1: you had focused on too there. That passage is it Schreiber's father who acts through machines. or on the contrary, is the machines themselves, the function of the father. The... So, there's certainly a point here about the way in which you can interpret that, right? There's certainly a psychoanalytic move, like you're saying, which is to, to appeal to the Father and that, that stuff, right? We, we all know that. Um, but this is part of, I think, a, a really critical aspect here. Because one way to look at that or is to take it as a, whether intentional or not, a suggestion of a disjunction. And that's really critical, I think, here. Because as we're talking about the complex um, that is love, the index of love, as we're talking about this um, kind of uh, portal nature of the schizophrenic paranoia at the molecular and the molar, right, and particularly going back to the mulatto, this is something I think they're reinforcing here, just like with schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis, is once again, you have an inclusive disjunction in tension with an exclusive disjunction. And that there's not a resolving of that contradiction, is there? In fact, we might even wonder if it is a contradiction.
0: I think we're going to get into that in just a moment Um, because we're about to talk about uh, Charlie Chaplin, which uh, man, this is, this is, this is a long paragraph.
2: Yeah. I was reading this before the session today and I do not understand what the point of it all is. So
0: help me. I, I, we will do our best. Um, This is like one of my favorite paragraphs from the last reading because it took us a long time, but um, it's a really worthwhile discussion. Um, this is actually why we have movie night, is this paragraph. <laughs> um, because it's uh, we decided we needed to watch Modern Times and also uh, his other shorts. Um, I'm going to take breaks through this because this does not necessitate reading all the way through and then revisiting. I think there is a lot of singular points through this. It is mostly quoting actually another entire writer. It is not Deleuze writing. This is Deleuze writing, here is an excerpt and then here's the other writer. That's uh, Michel Cunot uh, writing about Charlie Chaplin. To just, so we'll make our way through. The following excerpt from an article by Michel Cunot on Chaplin helps us understand what schizophrenic laughter is, as well as the schizophrenic line of escape or breakthrough and the process as deterritorialization with its machinic indices. I'll right, leave that. The rest of this is not to lose. Here we go. The moment Charlie Chaplin makes the board fall a second time on his head, a psychotic gesture, he provokes the spectators' laughter. Uh, this is in reference to general slapsticky shit of the time, but this, I was trying to think of which film, and I realized this happens like three or four times to different Chaplin movies. Uh, Chaplin hit on the head with a board. First time, it's an injury. The second time, it knocks him down, spins him around, his eyes cross, whatever it may be. The second time on his head, the psychotic gesture, he provokes the spectator's laughter. Yes, but what laughter is this and what spectator? For example, the question no longer applies at all at this point of the film of knowing whether the spectator must see the accident coming or be surprised by it. It is as though the spectator, at that very moment, were no longer in his seat, were no longer in a position to observe things. I want to pause there. This is, I don't want to go into Cinema One and Two. I really don't want to go into Cinema One and Two. Um, if you've ever been immersed in a film, as you're watching, as this thing is happening, you are not necessarily thinking, oh, Charlie is about to get hit in the face with a board. Excellent. Oh, there is another time he will be hit. We're not doing that. It's not even really that we're surprised by it because we were, we were not thinking it wasn't going to happen. It is as though the spectator at that moment were no longer in a seat, were no longer in a position to observe things. A kind of perceptive gymnastics has led him progressively not to identify with the character of modern times, but to experience so directly the resistance of the events that he accompanies this character, has the same surprises, the same premonitions, and the same habits as he. Uh, I'm going to stop there before we talk about the eating machine. This is a really, I think, fantastic little bit about how we watch movies and we see things. There's a Uh, film theory um, about why Keanu Reeves is a good uh, leading man um, and why in Avatar uh, we liked CG characters or characters who don't really express a great deal. There's a really interesting thing film viewers do where we actually kind of utilize that main character as a vehicle for ourselves. This perceptive gymnastics, they talk about it. It happens over time. It's not that we identify... With the character of modern times we don't identify with neo in the matrix we're kind of there we experience so directly the resistance of the events that you accompany the character you have the same surprises the same premonitions and the same habits as that character film's really cool like that that's what he's referring to there thus it is that the famous eating machine a gif of which i've put in the uh chat um literally a short film where Chaplin is basically experiencing an eating machine, and it is a machine that feeds him and washes him and cleans him up and uh, all of that, and it goes awry, and it's it's actually pretty hilarious from a uh, especially the time period. Thus, it is that the famous eating machine, which in a sense by its excess is foreign to the film, Chaplin had invented it twenty two years before the film, is merely the formal absolute exercise that prepares for the conduct also psychotic of the worker trapped in the machine with only his upside down head sticking out. And who has Chaplin feed him his lunch since it is lunchtime? If laughter is a reaction that takes certain circuits, it can be said that Charlie Chaplin, as the film sequences unfold, progressively displaces the reactions, causes them to recede level by level Until the moment when the spectator is no longer master of his own circuits and tends to spontaneously take either a shorter path, which is not passable, which is barred, or else a path that is very explicitly posted as leading nowhere. We'll get into that. After having suppressed the spectator as such, Chaplin perverts the laughter, which comes to be like so many short circuits of a disconnected piece of machinery. Critics have occasionally spoken of the pessimism of modern times and the optimism of the final image. Neither term suits the film. Charlie Chaplin in modern time sketches, rather on a very small scale, with a very precise stroke, the finished design of several oppressive and fundamental manifestations. The leading character, if you haven't seen modern times, the rest of this is going to be really fucking tough to explain, just letting you know. like. It's going to be really tough. The leading character, played by Chaplin, has to be neither active nor passive, neither consenting nor insubordinate, since he is the pencil point that traces the design. He is the stroke itself. That is why the final image is without optimism. One does not see what optimism would be doing at the conclusion of this statement. This man and this woman, seen from the back, all black, whose shadows are not projected by any sun, advance toward nothing. The wireless telegraph, poles that run alongside the left side of the road, the barren trees that dot the right side, do not meet at the horizon. There is no horizon. The bald hills facing the spectator only form a line that merges with the void hanging over them. Anyone can see that this man and this woman are no longer alive. There is no pessimism here either. What had to happen, happened. They did not kill each other. They were not brought down by the police, and it will not be necessary to go looking for an alibi of an accident. Charles Chaplin did not dwell on this. He went quickly, as usual. He traced the finished design. Uh, really only works if you've seen Modern Times. I guess we're going to do another viewing of that. Is that how this works, Jack? Hell yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh that's movie night this week. I'll schedule that up soon. God. I'd
1: love to see it again. See, it's yeah. not just me anymore.
0: No, I'm I I love Chaplin. I I modern times is not my favorite of his. That's all. We talked the same discussion. Go listen to the podcast last year. We'll have this discussion in the past. I don't want to have it again. Um we, let's- we could also watch more than one Chaplin film. We could, but literally the point of this is the final image. It's the, it's the way that these things were traced out the way that he works. It's, I think fascinating and it's a really good deconstruction of why specifically his type of, and I think what came to be a very predominant way of dealing with what you would call the protagonist in a lot of films, uh, sort of came to be and, um, I mean, it's incredibly influential on all of filmmaking, to say the least. But again, the the underlying thing that this is talking about is the nature of how the the perception of these films, the perception of the actor, the perception of Chaplin's character, or even the ending, or all of these things, how these things come to be and how we take them in. The ability for us to continue to quickly move you don't really sit at the end of modern times and Jack, feel free to give your analysis. You don't sit there and go, Hmm, I wonder what happened to them. I, at least I don't. I mean, we could do that, but I don't know anyone who's like done that. There's a really strange reality that it just, it does end. And it is an encapsulated story, which I think is kind of the point of the end of this paragraph is that you are meant to go quickly, and not to skip to the next paragraph, because I know this is the next paragraph, but you're meant to go quickly. You're meant to play with the parts, the machines, the things like that, instead of the large representations. Oh, did it end on a happy note? Oh, was he captured? Or oh, what is the meaning of all of this is literally the opposite point of modern times. It's, um, God damn it. Are we going to analyze modern times now? Jack, please jump in.
1: It'll <laughs> be the nuts drift, right? God damn um, it. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right that one of the reasons, one of the things they're getting at is it ends and begins where we are, right? The film isn't, repre- it isn't necessarily a representation of what we exist in any more than it exists outside of reality, right? Because, and you get a little bit of some logic in a sense, but for our purposes, there's a way in which the uh, the film and that functions, um, certainly relative to the the viewer, but in the way that it's happening, about, the way the chaplain is, in a sense, a uh, schizophrenic line of fight, flight, right, that is very much part of the way that we're being produced alongside of him, right? And this is getting at, I think, an important part about perversion even, is that, um, you know, they say that the Deleuze and Guadari say that you uh, you induce from the representation, right, what's happening at the molecular in a sense, what they're able to, I think, show with modern time is that certain aspects of the paranoiac are coming forward, right? But in the same way, there's this line of escape, right? There's a, something opened up um, in, between the, in between the molar and the molecular, right? That is a change facilitated by this movie. It's a, a a different way of being and becoming is opened up. One that like and this is part of the theme of perversion, I think, even is that even as the representation of the molar are changing, part of the point is that you don't stay there, right? You keep moving with uh, within the territoriality.
0: one Misha, I know you want to say something.
5: Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm really, I'm actually, it's funny because I never really made the connection, but I, uh, I think it's really interesting how modern times, um, but maybe most Charlie Chaplin work, uh, has this amazing quality of, 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 uh, making the film like a machine or making the film work like a machine without referencing anything outside of it, although not being meaningless or something, um, Yeah, and um, I think how good of an example of cinema it is, like a great example of cinema it is. I also find it interesting how you said that it's very inspiring for a lot of cinema that came after it, and even though I don't want to deny Charlie Chaplin's influence, um, there are not a lot of recent films that actually approach cinema in that way, I think. Um,
0: Well, we should have this debate sometime, because I think... I'm not saying they do it well, but I'm saying the idea of how to functionally keep a person in a visual flow state is absolutely a thing that Cha- Chaplin can be analyzed and studied almost cynically. And I would argue that all of the Marvel films do an exceptional job of keeping the person in that hero's seat, joining them on their journey, even though it's emotionally meaningless and garbage. Don't get me wrong. Uh, cynically, there's a lot of work that you could do to sort of realize how that works and to play with it. It's a thing that for sure people and screenwriters do.
5: I think I think there's um I think there's a real real danger here to rid uh the, what Deleuze and Guattari are talking about here and rid Charlie Chaplin of their radical approach to form that like we're not just talking about immersion because imagine dragons can make you feel immersed in their songs because it's generic and it has loud drums and i'm not saying that loud drums are i mean of course they can uh, you know uh, have a great effect and uh, no hate to loud drums but i think there is a i think we must make a distinction between simple immersion and um this one step further um, of approaching the film by its form. Um, yeah.
0: I'm. Um, I. I mean. I don't know what you mean.
5: I think when
1: are you suggesting about... that the film is radioactive?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, go ahead. <laughs>
5: I think when they are talking about the last scene here they they describe in how Charlie Chaplin works with the like the mise-en-scène in a way that doesn't have like the goal of or doesn't only have the goal of immersion but there's something happening there that um
1: Sorry, I I need to collect my thoughts around this. I'm sorry. I I think part of the thing, too, though, is like they're getting really deep into the movie itself, too,
0: right? This is not them. Let me just really quick. None of this is them writing. This is them citing another film critic.
1: Fair enough. But uh, the film critic, uh, what was his name? Cornell. One of the things Quarneau is getting really into that I think is um, is certainly part and parcel for losing water is the machines in the movie, right? Like, um, I think that's one of the critical things is that um, at some level, yeah, there's a sense of immersion, but I think too, it's what the the film is able to do as a film that doesn't necessarily have the inside-outside distinction because it's... We kind of started at this point. It's interesting that we've we've returned to it um, so much later. But I think that's one of the things that that I I think Brutz is trying to highlight with immersion, that we can expand to say right. There's this way in which modern times is affecting um, partial objects, machines, both within and without the movie, in such a way that it is changing relations. Um, between those partial objects, right? It's opening up new functionalities. While, yeah, you still got the re-territorialization and the perversion, but it's able to produce a thrust forward um, within that territoriality, I think. I I do agree with you. It it, It can't always be the subject per se, unless we qualify the subject as the unconscious.
2: yeah i think you all are like circling around the same sort of point and um <clears throat> i think yeah it's important to bring up what's radical about chaplin uh, and modern times for deliz and Guitari here and i think like maybe a good starting point that goes to what you were just saying jack about um like the median point of the inside and the outside is uh that they draw our attention to uh what they call schizophrenic laughter I think that's the part uh towards i mean that's towards the beginning where he's talking about um well, it's the immersion but and the way that that is creating this functional passage of uh the laughter as affect to the spectator um and uh. So that's different than a sort of immersion in a maybe edipalized uh, narrative, a neurotic narrative, uh, right? There's a real uh, opening and point for uh, the the line of escape, the schizophrenic breakthrough, and the uh, like radical political potential of that for them.
1: Right, and, and I'll make a brief point before I, I get out of the way. C- consider immersion in terms of the unconscious, right? Let's expand the idea of immersion with, with an expanding imminence. The, the, fil- the, the machines in the film and that the, the things in the film, they're not exclusive to the film per se. The, the kind of things he's eating, the use of the mouth to eat, the way his face moves, right? These are things that don't exist solely in the, the film itself. And this is part of the thing with the, like the permeability we're trying to highlight. I think what this film's able to do as it's able to affect a whole new sense of relationships, a whole new connectivity, right? And this is the point about the, the de-territorialism re-territorializing, um, that relates to the film, but also, right, the way machines connect, um, the general sense is changed by this film, and any person produced, right, the spectators laughing like you're saying, um, insofar as there's a person there, are part of that process in the same way that something like um, I see a cupcake and what you just posted I think it's a cupcake in the same way that the cupcake has a functionality shifting um, because of this stats because of this film and I think if you if we expand immersion in that sense right um, I do think there's something happening there in terms of like like they say with the clock right social and technical machine but there's a way in which the clock can be altogether change in the way it relates, the way it functions, and the way it consummates.
0: I think to me, we're conflating two things that they're talking about here. On the one side, we're talking about modern times, but the brunt of this is not about modern times. The brunt of this is about the eating machine and the placement of the audience as spectator through the subject of the film and how literally the entire Film is about machines acting on him, and how he basically has no control over such a thing. The machines are happening to him. Everyone's watching. They're putting him in a place. They're adding food to the different things, and they are testing and retesting and moving and pushing and doing all of that stuff. Um, the The entirety of this is around all of the pieces of how sort of, you know, in general, machinic indices work. That it's not that we come from the place of representation, it's not that we look at the end of representation, it's that we look at the indices of things, the machinic indices, how the machines are functioning and what they're doing. And specifically, the eating machine and the talk of it. Uh, if laughter is a reaction that takes certain circuits, it can be said that. As that Charlie Chaplin, as the film's sequence unfolds, progressively displaces reactions and causes them to succeed. as it does, the film constantly is weirdly on the edge of this because things are happening so quickly there is no real time to digest and create a, a representation around it, you might say, or to to re-territorialize it in that specific way. He's charging so fast the 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 movement is happening in a way that short circuits the way that people are they they no longer as it says here are no longer masters of their own circuits and they either spontaneously take a shorter path which isn't passable it's barred off or a path that is explicitly posted as leading nowhere they by nature because he is now in control of all of the circuits of the machinery as things are flowing they don't have the ability to turn left or to turn right they just charge and as they just charge and they move through the eating machine, there is a larger story there. The eating machine is a, I consider it a sort of wonderful takedown of the concept of factory workers and how even consumption uh, is now being modernized even at this time, let alone now. It's a great little piece. But their example as it moves, the example given here for modern times is the final bit that the ending of modern times everyone talks about as being like this happy ending of this couple doing a thing that oh they found each other they've escaped together they're gonna probably go off and live a better life <laughs> there's no reason to believe this whatsoever I mean am I wrong if anyone's free to tell me this um, I, there's no reason to believe that's the case they've only ever had shit luck on top of shit luck on top of shit luck I mean there's no reason to believe it'll get worse but the point that the the critic here is talking about is like everyone says this and runs with it but the final image is not one of they're moving out the literally imminently the things in the image there is no horizon it is leads towards nothing there's a a line there's these bald face that only give vo- you know rise to a void that the reality is they are just going they're just moving there's no pessimism there's no optimism What had to happen, happened. These are the machinic indices that are in front of it. If someone comes away from this, as an example, just as I think to try to make the point that's trying to be made here, someone comes away and says, well, what an optimistic ending to the movie. We should probably have a discussion about where that came from and what produced the person's optimism, because it sure as fuck wasn't the film. And that's, I think, the underlying point here, that... The these things these these machinic natures and chaplin the laughter of this let's talk about where the laughter came from well there's the machine that produced it the thing that was observed in this parts we need to actually not just go oh oh it looks like it was a happy ending or sad ending or uh, modern times ends ha- ends well or whatever it's look through the actual pieces the actual parts that are functioning and see what was really produced and what was broken inevitably someone who sees modern times and comes away thinking it's a happy ending. There's something else going on there. They've brought other investments that are necessarily being brought into the experience.
5: I think I, I think I have collected my thoughts a little bit also based on what you guys said. I think what is, um, uh, radical in some way about this way of looking at modern times and modern times itself, is that the film is completely transparent about its own machinity. And it is it actually fits Chaplin's way of acting really well. 100%. Um, because it's extremely physical uh, and it, it's never really a character or like often not really a character with a personality. But but a but a really strongly moving body, moving on the grid of the mise en scene. Yes, and I think the ending also has such a recognizable, uh, grid, uh, like grid like mise en scene, like the the mise en scene of the of the end scene is such a s- strong cinematic grid. That it is really easy to sort of conjure what what is further in the grid even though they in the last scene show that the grid ends at the mountains but i think because the grid is so familiar of a road the grid of the 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 grid that roads produce that it's really easy to conjure a the the grid beyond the shot that we see
0: i've posted an image of it i think you're spot on that uh, i would even take it a step further to i think say what you're saying in a slightly different way because uh i think i'm with you the the final shot of the hero going off into the sunset or the whatever it is is so at the end of every goddamn movie in the history of everything and yeah and is done with like a swell of, of orchestral, like, oh my God, this is so great. Oh, yeah. And so very much that's sort of built into us, especially at this point. I do have to wonder if that was the case back then. But even so, the the nature of it does have that sort of secondary representation that is being interpreted, the, the social reality. Whereas the machinic nature, if you look at, and I, I posted a picture of it, that's actually on its own a dour and nihilistic ending to a film as a frame. Like, I don't know how else to look at that and not think like Tim Burton level cynicism almost. Yes. Are we, are we, are we in agreement on this Misha? Absolutely. Did I say, yeah, did I say it right? All right, good. Yeah. It's, I think that's to me, that's the point they're trying to make here is that they're using this film, this film critics take, uh, which I think is the right take on the, uh, some Chaplin stuff because to your point Chaplin is deeply machinic he's he was oh god so good he was so fucking good but calculated and thoughtful of every single moment in so many of his films the the opening line of the review the moment Charlie Chaplin makes a board fall a second time on his head he provokes the laughter that is such a great uh way to put it I just cause that's the slapsticky bullshit it was Chaplin's known for, but it was always very calculated. And as you put it, he was more like a marble rolling around the parts of a movie rather than a person.
5: Yes, absolutely. And and I think highlighting this machinic nature of cinema is a level of transparency and non-representation that that's, I think, what I tried to say earlier that we don't see often right now. And very much. Is because this... Movie is also about machines, and it is itself a machine. It's it's showing its gears constantly. Uh, in every scene, we get a new window into a new part of the body of cinema, and as you say, it's going so fast because you know the wheels keep turning. Um, and hi, like that transparency and that sort of. So not immersion, as Jack pointed out, not immersion in like a investment into a, a narrative, but immersion in the sense that we you, you, you literally get to be part of the machinic body of cinema because they are opening the doors to it constantly in the film. Um, And, and of course, don't, and also don't forget, we, at that time, the audience in the, in the physical space of the cinema was much more part of the machine as it is now, because of course, now we have a lot of uh, streaming and at home watching, but at that time being in the cinema, you were just as much as part of the machine as, um, as the industry or the film itself. And I think there's also a huge thing about um, uh, f- comedy or like or slapstick from that time, is that of course this laughing is also laughing with an audience, like there's this machine of or this wave, this this sinus wave of of laughter in a cinema crowd, like in the in the building in the actual physical space. And you have you have from that era more more films that that really um, address that uh, uh, really transparently, like the the Buster Keaton movie, and I forgot the title of the movie, the Buster Keaton movie, where he where there's a scene where he suddenly sits in the in the cinema room and then walks into the screen.
0: Yes. Um, oh crap! Yeah. Thank you for screwing my brain up now.
5: Yeah, because that really really does a similar thing, of also sort of uh, deconstructing this facade that the audience is not part of the movie because of course it's part of it
0: yeah Um, I'm actually thinking we're not going to move beyond uh, this paragraph because the next paragraph there's not a chance in hell we can get through even part of it in 20 minutes because It's Proust, and it's In Search of Lost Time. Um, I just don't think it's possible for us to even start down that road. Um, If Chaplin took us this long. (laughs) Not saying Proust is more complex than Chaplin, but Proust is more complex than Chaplin, so that's the way that works. Um, You said it. I know. It's it's just accurate. It's just accurate. I I don't think it's possible for us to talk about In Search of Lost Time without cause there's like 12 references in this paragraph that I will, one of us will have to break down what there, what is happening and why and fuck. I think and, Scott,
1: and, you, you not only did you lie about that, but you are probably a, D, a Mitchell fan, aren't you?
0: I I am. I actually own multiple first editions that are signed. I know you're all about the bone circles. That's that's a complete fucking lie. I almost puked as I said it. Um, uh, I think uh, next week we will move uh, straight into the next paragraph. Uh, So please do join us as possible at the noon uh, mark next week.